book of Daniel was the first, as far as we know, apocalyptic book. The two parts of Daniel, 1 through 6 and 7 through 12, very different kinds of information. Uh, the first six chapters are basically stories of deliverance. Uh, these stories seem to come to us from the Babylonian period, from the Persian period. Each of the stories seems to have been originally kind of independent, but then later they were collected together. Chapters 7 through 12 is a very different kind of material. That is the apocalyptic book, part of the book. Um, and that seems to date really from the year 167, very exact. And in the year 167, right at that time, the book of Daniel was put together, the various stories of deliverance with the latter half. So today we're in Daniel 6, and this is the last of the stories of deliverance. Um, this is probably one of the stories we're the most familiar with. But again, as always with Daniel, there, there's a backstory kind of behind it. It pleased Darius. Now, this is not one we've heard of before. We've heard so far several of the kings of Babylon, several of the kings of Persia. Uh, this is one of the kings of Persia. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps. Not a term you hear every day. Stationed throughout the whole kingdom. So over this big kingdom, we've got 120 essentially governors. Over them, three presidents. So 120 governors over 120 provinces, three have been set aside by the king to govern the 120. So they've got the big, the big picture. Daniel was one of the three. So we're showing Daniel at the very top echelon of the leadership of the Persian Empire. To these, the stat satraps gave account so that, and you gotta love this, the king might suffer no loss. The king is covering his bases. Soon Daniel distinguished himself above all the other presidents and satraps. Out of the 123, Daniel stands kind of above them because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planted to appoint him over the whole kingdom. So that's kind of the, the, the essential story. 120 leaders, three over them, Daniel distinguishes himself enough that he's about to be put in charge of the whole empire. So the presidents and the satraps tried to find grounds for complaint against Daniel. They don't like that somebody's going to be moved ahead of them and put over them in connection with the kingdom. But they could find no grounds for complaint or any kind of corruption because Daniel was faithful. And no negligence or corruption could be found in him. So they want to undo him, but they can't seem to find something that will work. The men said, we shall not find any ground or complaint against this Daniel unless he has an Achilles heel. We find it in connection with the law of his God. So the presidents and satraps conspired and came to the king and said to him, O King Darius, you can almost quote this now, live forever. This is the standard greeting. They all agreed that the king should establish, you know, they, not the king, they, the 122, decide, they agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce a decree that whoever prays to anyone, divine or human, for 30 days, except for you, O king, shall be thrown into the den of lions. Apparently, they know enough about Daniel's religion to think they got him on this one. What's the one thing a Jew cannot do? Pray to other gods. I mean, the, the Jewish people were notorious for this. Now a king, establish the decree. Sign the document. 
so that it cannot be changed. Now, who would have authority to change it? King. Must have a wishy-washy king. Easily manipulate. We don't want the king backsliding. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and decree. Now, this is a map of the Persian Empire. What strikes you about Big. Okay. <laughs> Biggest empire in the known world to that time. The empire after it, which will actually be larger, is the one of who? Alexander the Great. As a matter of fact, the only thing you would add to this to have Alexander's empire would be Greece. Just that little blob on the end. What Alexander did, of course, was he conquered the Persian Empire, which extended all the way into India. Matter of fact, it's at India his troops finally rioted on him and basically said, we want to go home, and they came back. So we got 120 satraps. You can understand, uh, I mean, this is India, Iraq, Iran, Syria, Jordan, Turkey, Egypt, Israel. It's, 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 it's a massive place. Three governors. One of these was Daniel, and that put Daniel in charge of the whole thing. Now, there's a backstory. I did not know this until fairly recently, but there, there's a story kind of behind the stories you find in Daniel 1.6. Here's the backstory. What in the world are four Jews, Daniel, who are the other three? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. They're conquered, right? Their nation was destroyed. Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. They were carried into slavery, okay? How did these guys wind up running the largest empire in the world? Did you ever wonder that? How did they maneuver themselves? And in all these stories, who, who are they meeting with each time? The king. And what we see in story after story is that these guys have somehow wound up being in the upper echelon in the royal court with the king of the mightiest empire in the world. That's a little bizarre. But there's a backstory behind this. Uh, in these stories, Daniel and the other three advance to the highest levels of power, uh, but they are in fact, and they're, they're working with, they're cooperating with, they're complicit with their enemies, the people who destroyed their country, their city, and their temple. But some or other they wind up in this working relationship. The backstory, turns out, is based on some uh, advice that was given to the exiles by the prophet Jeremiah. Turns out he actually sent, uh, when the exile happened, Ezekiel and that group were taken into exile. Jeremiah wasn't. Jeremiah stayed in Jerusalem. But Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, wrote a letter from Jerusalem to the exiles in Babylon and gave them some advice. And it appears that they took this advice. Uh, this is Jeremiah 29. It's called the letter of Jeremiah. Uh, no reason to believe this is not historical, okay? And it, it fits the, the, the whole narrative. These are the words of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining elders among the exiles. Why would they be remaining? A large number were killed. Tens of thousands were killed. 40,000 were killed. And the priests and the prophets and all the people of the ones who had been taken into Babylon whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. So this is a message from God through the prophet Jeremiah to the Jewish people who are now in exile. To all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. 
That's an interesting message. You're going to be there a while. Okay? Make yourself to home. Okay? Plant gardens. Eat what they produce. Take wives. Have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. And give your daughters in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Interesting. And then the bombshell drops. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. What city would that be? Babylon. By the waters of Babylon we lay down you know, our captors required of us. Seek the welfare of the people and the place who destroyed your nation, destroyed your city, destroyed your temple, and massacred tens of thousands of your people. No wonder Jeremiah wasn't too popular. Pray to the Lord in its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. In other words, live and prosper with your conquerors. Um, now, this would involve, I would think, a certain amount of collaboration with the enemy. Okay? They may be your enemy, but you've got to work with them. And as we look at the first half of the book of Daniel, what do we see Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego doing? Doing exactly what the letter Jeremiah said to do. They're there, they're prospering, they're making the best of it, and they manage to work themselves up the ladder. Obviously, there are going to be clear limits, which is what we're going to hit today. There's a limit to how much you can collaborate with your enemy because your enemy might require you to be some things you could not compromise on. But compromise there is because you are working with them. That strategy worked for over 400 years, from I-586 down to the year 167. So it was a good strategy. And we know that the Jewish people prospered over there so much so that we know that by the time of Jesus, there are more Jews in Babylon than there are in Palestine. And we know later that the leadership of the Jewish people worldwide, uh, you know there's two Talmuds, right? And one of them is the Babylonian Talmud. So even in 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th centuries A.D., one of the real centers of Jewish uh, scholarship and leadership for the Jewish people worldwide was in Babylon, and that was true until fairly recently. Through the Babylonian period, through the Persian period, and through most of the Greek period. Remember first it was the Ptolemies from Egypt that controlled from, uh, say, 331 down to about the year 200. Then the Seleucids took over, but even when the Seleucids took over, things were fine. The Jewish people were prospering. The stories that we find in the first half of Daniel are from this period. And they reflect, they reflect this period of collaboration with the enemy. I'm in the king's court. I'm working with the king. I'm trying to please the king. I'm trying to do good things for the king. And the, the, the thought behind it is because Jeremiah gave us the advice, that's what we should do. And they did it, and they did it well. So you've got Daniel living in two worlds. He's living in the world of this conquering empire, and he's living in the world of his faith, and he's walking a fine line between the two. And that fine line is going to get stepped on today. Daniel is depicted, not just in chapter 6, but in chapters 2, 3, all the way through. He's depicted as a master of the game, okay? 
He knows how to play this game and play it well, and he climbs the ladder all the way up. That's what threatens these others. We don't know who these others are from. They could be from various countries. Uh, but they, they want to undermine Daniel's position. Uh, the problem is they couldn't find any of the traditional means. Normally, how do you get a politician out of office? Scandal. Yeah. <laughs> Sex or money, you know, something like that, you know. Still works, still works. Dan Daniel wasn't cooperating, darn it. Uh, but he has a weak point. He has an Achilles heel, and it is the law of his God, which is interesting because this is a phrase you never hear before the, the Second Temple period. This is not language from the land from Israel or from earlier in the Bible. This is fairly late language. Uh, there's places where Daniel cannot compromise, and so their trap for Daniel is based on his Jewish faith. They've got to find Daniel doing something that they know he's going to do because he's a Jew, and Jews do these things. Do you remember what they, what they came up with with the king? We're going to pass a law, pass an ordinance, that anybody who does X will you know, pray. So obviously there's something about Daniel and the way he prays that's going to give him away. And this is true, particularly in the second temple period. They, they hook on the law of God, which is a post-exilic language. After the exile, Jewish identity was based not on nationality. You know, prior to the exile, who were the, who were the Jews? Well, they were Israel. They were in the land of Israel. The ten northern tribes get destroyed. You've got Judah left. They are a nation. They have boundaries. They have a government. They have a king. They have all the kinds of things of nationhood. Now, after the exile, what do they have? None of that. They're basically prisoners in this large kind of empire. So if you're going to have identity as a people, it cannot be in the, 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 the markers you used to have. You've got to have something different. And we know that that's kind of what, what happened. Loyalty to Torah, there are other things, you know, circumcision, kosher laws, and things like that. But loyalty to Torah is the big one. Uh, this was part of the reforms of Ezra and Nehemiah. And in Ezra chapter 7, we have the first time this, this, this language, the law of God, is used. And Ezra is sent back from Babylon to Palestine by whom? Do you remember? Who sends him back? Persian king. Who finances his going back? Persian king. Who finances the rebuilding of the second temple? The Persian king. It's in the interest of the Persian Empire to have stability. And so he sends these people back. By the way, he's, he's a buffer. You know, we have other empires out there. So Ezra 7, Artaxerxes, one of the, the, the kings of Persia, king of kings. That's the title for Persian kings. It's interesting. New Testament picks that up. To the priest Ezra, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven. So far as we know, this is the first time this phrase is ever found. For you are sent by the king to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God. We're going to establish stuff based on law. Which is in your hand. Woo! What did you just learn? <coughs> What's he got in his hands? The Torah. Scholars say that the Torah did not exist as the five books of Moses in the way we think of them until the exile. And one of the things that happened in the exile is that the, the, bo the books of Moses, the Torah, was edited into the form that we have it today. Earlier, Josiah had found the book of Deuteronomy. You know, the law was there, but it hadn't been the form it is. 
So what is one of the things that, that Ezra does? He comes back from Babylon to Palestine carrying the Torah. It's the earliest reference we have to this. Whatever the priest Ezra, the scribe of the law of God in heaven, requires of you, let it be done with all diligence, which tells you that as they come back from the exile and they get back to the land of Palestine, how will their society be ordered? At the legal side, it's going to be under the law of the land, which would be the Persian Empire, but their people are going to be governed by the Torah. And then we have that famous story by the Watergate where Ezra reads from the law, gets in the first pulpit, and he delivers the first sermon. So far as we know, he reads from the law from morning till night. You guys get off easy. Uh, <laughs> and then he gave sense to the word. He explained what was there. It's the world's first sermon. So after the exile, the faith became centered in the law rather than the temple and the king. Uh, and this is one of the things in the story that betrays the fact that the, the book of Daniel in its final form it's probably not in the Persian period, but it's probably in the second century. There's also no evidence from the Babylonian period to the Persian period that Torah observance was punishable offense under the Persian period. Now, if you know anything about Persia, it's quite the opposite. Remember Cyrus I, whom Isaiah calls the Messiah? Because God has called Cyrus I of Persia, his Messiah, his anointed, to allow the Jews to go home. And it's Cyrus that does that. So the Persians were, in fact, known for their religious tolerance. Uh, they allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem. They paid, paid for the building of the temple. Send another guy, Nehemiah, paid for the rebuilding of the wall so it had security. So it is the, the policy of the Persian Empire not to persecute. There are no known instances of that. Religious oppression, historically, appears for the first time in history anywhere in the world, so far as we know, in the year 167 in Jerusalem by Antiochus Epiphanes, the Seleucid Greek leader. It's one of the reasons that the scholars think that this dates that period, mid-2nd century with Antiochus Epiphanes. Not pray to any other than the king. Now, by the Roman times, we know that, that uh, leaders in the world very commonly would put make coins, and on those coins they would call themselves what? God, DV, Son of God, DV, Philii, Sebastos, one to be worshipped, and that was a very kind of common thing. And we, we have that in the, in, the, in the Greek Empire. Matter of fact, guess who the first human in the world, so far as we know, to ever do that was? Antiochus, Epiphanes, Sebastos, is what his coin says, to be worshipped, called himself a god. Again, no evidence of this in the Persian period, but in the Hellenistic period, it does fit. Daniel 6, verse 10. We're going to get to the lion's den. Although Daniel knew that the document had been signed, okay, he knew better. He knows what's happened. So any action Daniel now does is done willfully, and, and he knows what the consequences are. He continued to go to his house. Look what he does. Which the windows in the upper room open towards Jerusalem. Now, if you're a Jew in the United States today, which direction do you pray? Every synagogue in the United States is oriented where everybody faces what direction? East. Why? What's in the east? Jerusalem. Okay. 
And if you're in Babylon, you're going to face west. So every Jewish synagogue in the world today, wherever it is, it orients towards ground zero, which happens to be Jerusalem. And this, this is a practice. By the way, we think this practice started during the exile when Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed. And so when you prayed, where would you pray towards? Your home, that which you'd lost. The windows of the upper room opened towards Jerusalem. He would get down on his knees three times a day to pray to his God and to praise him, just as he had done previously. So the decree makes no, no change for him. The conspirators, sneaky little varmints, came and found Daniel praying and seeking mercy before his God. Then they approached the king, because they've got a tale to tell, and said concerning the decree, O king, we know you're forgetful and you, you, know, you forgot you said these things, but did you not sign a decree that anyone who prays to, to anyone, divine or human, within 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the den of lions. And they made him what? Write it out so he couldn't renege on the deal. The king answered, what kings say? The thing stands fast, whatever you say. According to the law of the Medes and the Persians, cannot be revoked. Then they responded to the king, Daniel. It's not a voice he wanted to hear, a name he wanted to hear. Turns out the king likes Daniel a lot. Daniel is his friend. And this king is going to go through a lot of grief because these guys have painted the king into a corner. Now these guys have painted it where the king has to act against his own friend. And this is going to cause a lot of anguish. Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the decree that you have signed. He is saying his prayers three times a day. By the way, second time that's been mentioned, so it must be important. When the king heard the charge, he was very much not angry. He was distressed. He's upset. He was determined to save Daniel. Very, very sympathetic depiction of the king. Now, when we hit chapter 7, it's a whole different matter. The king is evil incarnate. But in first chapter, first six chapters, he's not. He was determined to save Daniel. And until the sun went down... He made every effort to rescue them. Anything he could do, he tried. Get Daniel out of this situation. Save Daniel's life. Then the conspirators came to the king and said to him, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians. You wonder, why can't a king change the law? But it would wreck the story. <laughs> no ordinance the king establishes can be changed. Then the king gave the command, reluctantly, Daniel was brought and thrown into the den of lions. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you faithfully serve, deliver you. So the last words from the king's mouth is, I don't know how it's possible, but if it's possible, I hope you can get out of this. A stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, just in case Daniel can scratch his way back up to the top. And the king sealed it with his own signets. Everything's done legally and officially and with the signet of his lords, so that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. That's a Jewish custom. No food was brought to him. Sleep fled from him. So you get a very consistent depiction of the king. This is somebody who's not happy that this is going on. 
Now, one of the focal points of this story, and it's mentioned actually three times in the narrative, is it focuses on this distinctive way that, that he prays. Um, this is what gives him away. This is what his enemies see. They see Daniel going to the window facing Jerusalem three times a day and, and praying there. Uh, and actually, we have this from verse 10. He continued to go into the house. The windows opened towards Jerusalem. He got down his knees three times a day to pray to his God. Um, now, this is one of many places in Daniel where practices that we see are not indicative of the Persian period or the Babylonian period, but in fact of much later. And this is one of them. Um, the way Daniel prays is a way that seems to develop during the exile and after the exile. Now, during the exile, if, you, if the Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed, you could face Jerusalem kind of almost in mourning or memory, and it becomes the focal point. But what about after the, the temple is destroyed? You could still face it because it would still be the symbol of your faith. And it appears that that practice started there. Three times a day, morning, afternoon, evening, if you know the, the Gospels and the book of Acts, you know that during the time of Jesus, this was still the custom. Matter of fact, Peter and John in the book of Acts are, are depicted as going to the temple during the times of prayer. So even after Jesus was crucified, they still think of themselves as being Jewish. And part of, the, what, the, part of what the first Christians did in Jerusalem is that three times a day they went to the temple. Uh, and they would participate that. Now, if you're not in Jerusalem but you find yourself praying towards Jerusalem the three times of day that in the Jerusalem they're actually offering the sacrifices, that's a way that you can continue to participate within that. This appears to be what's going on. He, he and other Jews, at the exact moments that, that the sacrifice would have been or was being offered in Jerusalem, he participates through prayer and through bowing down. Now, again, that's not written anywhere in the law. This is a later custom that came forward um, during the second temple period. And it's a way that he could participate in the worship without being physically present in the temple. So even later, during the time of Jesus, people in synagogues or people just in the fields could still stop three times a day, face Jerusalem, and pray. And the, the, Isla the Islamic faith, where do they face? Mecca, five times a day. Very similar type of thing. Both the number of times of daily prayer and the... Uh, and the times of day correspond exactly with when the services were held in the temple. So we don't think that's an accident. Uh, we have a very positive view of the king. He cares for Dan Daniel. He anguishes. Uh, next week you'll see a different type of thing as the, the story turns much darker. Uh, the king is also depicted as weak and easily manipulated. Some of y'all remember when Susan taught, is it uh, Esther? And also the, the book of Judith. Uh, the literature of this time shows the king as being easily manipulated and vacillating. So he sort of picks that. Verse 19. Then at break of day, the king got up. He's not sleeping in. He's concerned about his friends. With the break of dawn, he hurried to the den of lions. When he came near the den where Daniel was, he cried out anxiously. The, the, the language is just consistent. Anxiously to Daniel. Oh, Daniel. Looks how he's described. Servant of the living God has your God whom you s faithfully serve been able to deliver you from the lines and that's kind of the punchline you know there's no way you're getting out of this on your own but has your God been able to help you Daniel then said to the king O king live forever that's what you got to say to a king 
uh, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths so that they would not hurt me because I was found blameless, which remember when they tried to find something against him, he was blameless before them. And also before you, O king, I have done no wrong. Then the king was exceedingly glad, commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because, punchline, he had trusted in God. That's why he was delivered. My God sent his angel. Remember uh, the, the story of the three youth in the fiery furnace? We put three in, but how many came out? Or how many did they see in there? Four. And the fourth one seems to be a, an angelic figure. Same thing here. Again, this would remind da Daniel's readers of the, of the Exodus story where God's people are protected and they're led by an angelic being. Exodus 23, 20. I'm going to send an angel in front of you to guard you on the way and to bring you to a place that I prepared. And then over in Psalm 91, there's even a psalm that talks about this and links it to the image of a lion's den. So in Psalm 91, we get these words. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands, they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against the stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Uh, there's even a Babylonian poem that speaks about God closing the mouths of the lions. Have no idea how to pronounce that. Uh, <laughs> it was Marduk who put a muzzle on the mouth of the lion who was eating me. And the, the book of Daniel says exactly the same thing. Lion's Den is also a metaphor. It is, is a common image during the exile and after for that horrible experience, that horrendous experience they went through. Um, Jeremiah used it a little earlier in Jeremiah 50. Israel is a hunted sheep driven away by lions. First, the king of Assyria devoured it. So the, the king of Assyria is like a devouring lion. And now at the end, King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian, has gnawed its bones. So kind of an image that we use. Uh, so Daniel's gone through this experience. Israel's gone through this experience. People reading Daniel's story after the exile would see their story within that. Daniel is saved for two reasons. One, he's, he's innocent. He's done nothing wrong. And two, he has faith in God, which we know in the book of Daniel and in the book of Revelation too. That's the key thing people are always called, called back to. Trust God. Believe in God. And then we have this punchline. No kind of harm was found in him because he had trusted in his God. And that stands sort of at the end of the story. Uh, that's the takeaway. That's what the author wants you to read before the final section. Um, when you face the lion's den, trust God. You will be delivered. And this is why uh, you're probably familiar with this image. Uh, Catacombs of Rome. About the year 200, the very, very first Christian images appear. Among them are the three youth in the fiery furnace, Jonah and the whale, and Daniel in the lion's den. Now, what do all three of those stories have in common? Trust in God, and they're stories of <coughs> deliverance. So the earliest images that Christians used, they would reach into, it's interesting that two out of the three came from the book of Daniel. They would, they would see Daniel speaking to them. Uh, early Christians also faced the lions of persecution. 24 through 28. The king gave a command, and those who had accused Daniel 
were brought and thrown into the den of lions. I like a happy ending, okay. <laughs> they, their children, and their wives. <sighs> Could have stopped with the earlier part, you know. Uh, before they reached the bottom of the den, midair. You ever have a dog that catches a ball or a frisbee? <laughs> yeah, that's what we got here. The lions overpowered them, broke their bones to pieces. So we have, we have the evil people who sought to destroy Daniel are destroyed in exactly the way they sought to destroy him. Which also happens in the book of Esther with Mordecai when Haman builds a hanging noose to hang Mordecai and guess who gets hung on it? Haman, okay. And I guess there's a sort of a, a justice in that. Then King Darius wrote to all peoples and nations in every language throughout the whole world. May you have abundant prosperity. I make a decree. Gotta be careful of these decrees. That is, all my royal dominion people should tremble and fear. Well, we already do that. Before the God of Daniel. Remember, we notice in each of these stories at the end, we have a period where the, where the confession of faith, the, the, the Jewish Apostles' Creed, is always from whose lips? The king. It's, just, it's, it's part of the formula for these stories. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion has no end. This is the God of Israel. He reigns, he delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders on heaven and earth. And he has saved Daniel from the power of the lines. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and then the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Um, so the story ends with this flip-flop, this reversal of fortune, where the very people who sought to destroy uh, Daniel are themselves destroyed, but not destroyed just in any way. They're destroyed in the exact same way that they thought, thought to get rid of Daniel. Now, it turns out that that's according to Jewish law. If you go to Deuteronomy and it says there, you know, if somebody accuses somebody else of doing something and seeks a punishment against them, and it turns out they were lying and the person wasn't guilty, guess what punishment they get? They get the same. If the witness is a false witness, having testified falsely against another, then you shall do to the false witness just as the false witness had meant to do to the other. Now, I don't know about the wives and children. That's a, that's a little deal. But the, that's a, the lex talionis, an eye for an eye. The whole business of you, you, know, you get what you intended to inflict. The reversal of fortune includes Daniel being rewarded, and this is, again, in all these stories, we always, I mean, they always get promoted. <coughs> How many times can you get promoted? He's already at the top. Uh, is this the formula? Now, there is a historical anomaly here because you remember who was the first king of Persia? Cyrus. Who was Darius? Later. And this author gets him backwards. He thinks Darius is first and Cyrus is later. Now, why would you make that mistake? Maybe if you live 400 years later. Yeah, how much do you know about 16th century European monarchs? You know, I, you know, I can't even get the English ones right, you know. I figure Henry III's before Henry IV, but that's about as near as I can get it, kind of thing. And so this author, this is another sign that the author probably does not live during this king's reign, because he would know that. Um, at the uh, early stories, the sermon that delivers the point comes from the king himself. It's part of the formula. The king's letter declares to the world 
the message that this story, remember this story probably circulated independently before it was spoken to Daniel, but it declares this message. This is the message of it. Everyone must fear and reverence, not reference, the God of Daniel. (coughs) The God of Daniel is the living God, not the statues that we worship. The God of Daniel endures forever. The God of Daniel's kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will, will never end. He rescues, he saves, he performs miracles. Daniel's God can pull you out of the lion's den, and the other gods cannot. He rescued Daniel. Daniel prospered. Why? Because Daniel trusted in the Lord or entrusted in God. Now, with this story, the first half of Daniel and the, the stories of deliverance come to an end. Uh, chapter 7, which we'll look at next week, uh, the apocalyptic, <coughs> the stuff you've been waiting for, okay, uh, opens with the words, Daniel had a dream and visions in his head. Now, in the first six chapters, we don't have any of Daniel's dreams. Whose dreams do we have? King. King has a dream, can't figure it out, calls in all the, the professionals. They can't figure it out. Bring Daniel in. Daniel can figure it out. Now we have a shift. Daniel has dreams, and Daniel has visions. So who can help Daniel understand his dream? The angel comes, and the interpretation is given. So starting next week, it'll be very different. So next week, we start with a corker, vision of the four beasts. And if you ever see one of these, run. Okay. (laughs) Charge to keep I have. Would you stand?